Today is a really celebratory day here at the Parsha Podcast here in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My name is Yaakov Wolby. The email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And we're celebrating today. As you know, we are beginning year three of our streak. We completed with the help of the Almighty and with your listenership. We completed a streak of two years without missing a single week's Parsha podcast, a new one. Of course, we have the rebroadcast from a couple of years ago that we still release every week. But it's been two years now. I think it's an amazing accomplishment that for two years, in addition to the rebroadcast, we have a new episode from the week. And I like to talk about it over here on the Parsha podcast, not just because I feel like I'm sharing this momentous occasion with y'all, my best buds, but also because when I share it publicly, it adds a little bit more pressure to make sure that everyone knows that there's the streak, and if it's Thursday like it is this week, and there's no Parsha podcast yet, I start getting those text messages, everyone's checking up, they want a sign of life, show me a sign of life, what's going on? And that pressure is really helpful. It's the good kind of pressure. It's the best kind of pressure to, please God, produce a new episode each week. But the truth is, there's another reason that we are celebrating today. Like other parents the world over, we are celebrating the return to school for the kids that are going back to school. For us, for the parents, this is the first day of vacation. It's so quiet. The kids all went to school. What a joy. And I don't know what I'm going to do with all this extra time I have on my hands. What am I going to do? Should I restart the newsletter? As you perhaps know, I used to have a weekly newsletter. And then when our baby was born in March, I kind of stopped doing it. It was a little bit of a hectic time, as you may imagine. And then once the kids go out of school in June, forget about it. But maybe, just maybe, it's time to reignite and rekindle the newsletter. You stay tuned for that. And again, the email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Let's begin the celebratory edition of the Parsha podcast for Parshas Re'eh. Today we're going to share what I think is a stunning observation followed with a critical call to action. In six verses in our parsha, we read about a very unusual crime. This is chapter 13 of the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, verses 7 through 12. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your friend, who is like your son, will entice you secretly. So if you have a friend or a relative, and they are enticing you secretly, saying, let us go and worship the gods of others that you do not know, not you, not your forefathers. From the gods of the people that are all around you, those near to you, and those far from you, from one end of the world to the other. If you have a a relative, a friend, someone that's close to you, and they're trying to entice you secretly, come, let's go worship these idols, these foreign pagan gods of the people not course, our God, not the creator of heaven and earth, but all the other pagans that are around us. 
Verse 9, you should not accede to him. You should not hearken to him. Your eye shall not take pity upon him. You should not be compassionate nor conceal him. Rather, you should surely kill him, execute him. Your hand should be the first against him to kill him and the hand of the entire people afterwards. You pelt him with stones and he shall die. This is the kind of person that's executed for he sought to make you stray from near Hashem your God who takes you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery and all of Israel shall hear and fear and they shall not again do such an evil thing in your midst. We know of course that the Torah treats idolatry with the most severe harshness. It's one of the things that carries with it capital punishment. And there are so many times in Devarim and Deuteronomy that we are warned against capitulating to idolatry. We're going to go into this really terrible neighbor, the Canaanites, and they have so many forms of idolatry, and we have to destroy it, and we have to eradicate the land from idolatry and not veer into their ways, not emulate them, and not embrace their deities. Now today, of course, this whole subject is a bit strange because none of us have a burning urge, a desire for idolatry. In antiquity, we are told, the desire for idolatry was so intense that it actually dwarfed any other desire that we have today. This is what people were obsessed with. People were obsessed with worshiping foreign gods. And we know, if you look at our history, you look at the scripture, our literature, idolatry ensnared even great sages. We're told, for example, about Menashe, king of Judah, that he was a greater sage than Rav Ashi, the author of the Talmud. But nevertheless, he followed idolatry. And the Talmud reveals that King Menashe appeared to Rav Ashi in a dream and he demonstrated his Torah prowess. And he was a great sage and even one that towered over the great Ravashi. So Ravashi said to him in the dream, if you're so bright and you're such a great scholar, what were you thinking with all the idolatry? And he responded, you, Ravashi, you exist after the desire for idolatry has dissipated, has gone away. Had you been in my generation, had you been subjected to the same kind of desire for idolatry that I was subjected to, not only would you worship the idols, you'd run, you'd lift up your tunic, your garments, so you could run even faster to the house of idolatry. The Talmud actually tells us that there was an elaborate ceremony undertaken by the men of the great assembly where they prayed and they cried and they fasted for three days. This group actually included the latter prophets amongst them. And after three days of praying, the Almighty delivered to them the desire, the inclination, the Yetzirah for idolatry. This is featured in two places, in the book of Yoma and in the book of Sanhedrin. And it's a very... Interesting and elaborate story. But the bottom line is, there used to be an intense 
desire for idolatry, and that desire doesn't exist anymore. And therefore, when we read about idolatry in the Torah, and we kind of scratch our heads, wondering why is there so much attention paid to this practice when it just doesn't exist in our world, or at least in what we would call today, I guess, the Western world, the first world. It's very hard to find actual idolatry bowing down, genuflecting to figurines of wood and stone. It doesn't articulate us. It doesn't capture us at all. But antiquity, it was a dominant influence. And it's a capital offense. Idolatry is totally forbidden. In our citation in our parsha, we're not talking about the worship of idols, but of the person who tries to entice others, your your friend, your relative, they're trying to entice you to worship idols. And that too is a capital crime. Not just the worship of idols, but trying to get someone else to do it, to entice someone to do idolatry is a capital crime. And in verse 9 we read about five different laws regarding how we must treat this enticer of idolatry. And the Talmud and the commentaries, they delineate, number one, that we cannot love him. We're commanded, of course, by the Torah, to love every Jew. One of the most famous verses in the Torah, V'ahavta l'reacha kamocha, you should love your fellow as yourself. It's a mitzvah to love our fellow Jew. But this person, this enticer to idolatry, there is a prohibition against loving him. He is so contemptible, we are commanded to not love him. Number one. Number two, we cannot allow our hatred for him to cease. We have to hate him with such intensity, we cannot allow that to be diminished. Number three, we cannot save him. We have a commandment, if you see someone who's in danger, their blood is being spilled, and they're at risk of dying. You cannot retreat to your corner and stand idly as your brother's blood is being spilled, you are required to go try to save them. One of the mitzvahs of the Torah is to save those that are on the verge, on the precipice of dying. That applies for everyone else. For this mesis, for this enticer of idolatry, law number three tells us that we are barred from saving him. If you see an enticer of idolatry and they fall into the pool, the deep end, and they don't know how to swim, and they're like flailing about, I'm going to die. The Torah tells us we're not allowed to save him. And again, it's important to note, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, the enticer of idolatry featured in our parsha is someone who attempts to persuade someone to reject God and embrace idolatry in God's stead. Even if the person is unsuccessful in their efforts, they try to entice someone to follow idolatry, but they failed. They're nevertheless classified as an enticer for idolatry, and all these laws apply. 
So number one, we can't love them. Number two, our hatred for them cannot abate. Number three, we cannot save them. Number four, we cannot argue for his innocence or his acquittal or exculpation. Typically, in a court, everyone's motivated, or at least that's the law. If there's a capital crime case being adjudicated, everyone, the judges, all the bystanders and onlookers are encouraged, in fact, it's a mitzvah, to try to find exculpatory evidence to get the guy off the hook. We are mandated, we are instructed to seek out an argument for acquittal. That applies to all other people standing trial, not to the enticer of idolatry. And finally, number five, we cannot withhold incriminating evidence. Ordinarily, everyone's encouraged to submit exculpatory evidence, but only the judges are allowed to argue arguments for guilt. Here, by the enticer of idolatry, everyone must extend all their arguments for guilt. So we see an individual in our parsha who is treated with unprecedented harshness. We have to accord this person personal enmity. You have to love everyone, not this guy. We have to ignore his pleas for mercy. We do stand idly as his blood is being shed. The Talmud adds that the witness procedures are altered in a normal, ordinary case of capital crime. The individual who is being judged, the defendant, can only be judged if they were properly warned before they committed their alleged offense. So someone's about to do a crime that carries with it capital punishment. The witnesses can only bring the person to court if they warned the perpetrator before he did what he did. Moreover, the law states that the individual who is accused has to verbally acknowledge the warning and say that I know that this is the gravity of my behavior. I'm doing it nonetheless. I know that you're going to drag me, drag me to court. I don't care. I'm doing it nonetheless. That applies to every other case. Here, by the enticer of idolatry, he does not need to be warned in order to be judged. In fact, we hide the witnesses and try to entrap the criminal. So there are all these ordinary protocols that are suspended for this crime of the enticer of idolatry. A typical case in court, you're looking for innocence. You're trying to find an argument for acquittal. Here, those judicial protocols are suspended. We don't try to seek out innocence in the deliberations. All the arguments for guilt are encouraged. And in another first, typically, I think this is true, in fact, in common law and American law, once the court arrived, let's say, at an acquittal, 
And then new evidence surfaces once the ruling was submitted that they are innocent, they've been exculpated. You cannot retry them. You cannot appeal an acquittal. With one exception. The enticer of idolatry who was found to be innocent, we can appeal the acquittal and seek to retry them. So there are so many examples of laws that the enticer of idolatry is subject to, laws that indicate the unique severity that the Torah treats this crime with. Listen to this, another interesting law. Suppose you have a person that's guilty of a capital crime or some other crime, and they need to be punished by the court, and let's say the executioner, if you will, or the individual that's hired by the court to mete out punishment for the guilty. That person happens to be the son of the guilty party. So you have a father, and they need to be punished by the court, and their son, that's their job. So typically we'd say, you know, let's find someone else to do the punishment because you shouldn't be hitting, you shouldn't be striking your father. That's true by everyone else aside from the enticer for idolatry. For this person, we show no mercy. And again, the most stunning point is that these laws apply even if the person was totally unsuccessful in their efforts to entice someone to follow idolatry. They tried to take someone and draw them away from God. And that crime, the effort, the attempt to do that, that is sufficient to put them in this category of ignominy, of infamy, of being an entice of idolatry and being treated with such severe harshness. Here is the stunning observation. This is courtesy of the great Rabbi Rucham. He points out, the Talmud tells us, that God's attribute of goodness, of reward, of kindness, that overshadows God's attribute of punishment and harshness and strictness by a factor of 500. So if you can measure the intensity, the degree with which God extends punishment, you can infer from that the degree of God's conveyance of reward. You take that intensity of punishment and you multiply it by 500, and that will be the degree of reward for someone who does the opposite of what the person did to receive the punishment. And he points out, you have an enticer for idolatry. Someone is trying to push people away from their creator. And that crime is so severe, it's treated with such unprecedented severity. How much reward, how much divine kindness and mercy and compassion and goodwill is bestowed upon someone who does the opposite of the enticer of idolatry. If the person who's pushing people away from God is treated so severely, more harshly than any other criminal, 
someone who does the opposite, someone who tries to bring people closer to their creator, closer to God, that person will be rewarded, our sages tell us, 500 times the degree of the punishment of the enticer. Evidently, the thing, the practice, the behavior that garners the most reward is the effort, not the success, but the effort to try to get our brethren, humanity, people, to draw them back to their creator. If the enticer is worthy of more harshness and how they're treated by the laws of the Torah more than anyone else, the person who does the opposite, who tries to pull people back to God, that person is deserving of more reward than anyone else. The opposite of the enticer times 500. How incredible is that? Now, again, to sweeten the deal, a lot of people, when we bring up this subject, and of course, you know, this is a subject that our organization, Torch, the Torch Center, this is what we try to do, try to connect Jews and Judaism, try to connect people back to their spiritual roots, to their creator. And whenever we try to get other people to do this, we find People are, you know, they're a bit hesitant. People are hesitant to try to, quote-unquote, evangelize, to try to encourage people to reconsider their relationship with their creator. You know, they say, like, religion, it's almost like politics or money. It's the third rail of subjects. you got to mind your own business. Don't deal with someone else's relationship with God. Plus, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the whole subject. After all, you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a gifted polemicist. We're simple people. I'm not going to present myself as some sort of expert. I'm not going to argue with some about faith and religion. And if I try, I'll probably fail. Now we know that failure in this effort doesn't really matter. Here we see that the enticer for idolatry, someone to, someone's trying to draw people away from God, is treated as such a pariah. He's treated with such unprecedented harshness, even if he doesn't succeed. Merely trying, attempting to repel people from God is an unforgivable crime. It's the worst. And we can infer from this that merely trying, attempting, albeit without any success, trying to draw people closer to God? That's the greatest mitzvah. That's the opposite of the enticer times 500. This is the stunning observation of the great Rabbi Rucho. The Mesis, the enticer for idolatry, is the worst criminal in Torah law. The Makarev, the one who brings people back to God, or at least attempts to do so, that's the greatest hero. Now, this principle is substantiated all over Torah literature. 
So, for example, we have twin teachings in the Talmud, in the book of Bab Metziah, page 85a. It talks about someone who teaches Torah to another person. Whoever teaches his friend's son Torah. Someone else, not a relative of yours, not your own child, someone else's child. This person will merit and sit and dwell in the heavenly academy. You want admission to the heavenly academy? That's the hardest ticket in the town. It's really hard to find it. It's harder than getting a ticket by Hamilton in its heyday, I guess. I don't know what today is on Broadway, but the, the hardest ticket in town. The most difficult and coveted ticket of all is a seat in the Academy of Heaven. And how do you get it? Talmud tells us the book of Amitzia, page 85a. Teaching Torah to other people. Spreading the Almighty's wisdom to his children. That's your ticket of admission. The Talmud continues, if you teach Torah to the son of an ignoramus, the reward for that is that you are given the power to annul divine decrees. I feel who goes there to Zerah, even if God decrees a decree, Mevatlo, God will annul it on the account of someone who teaches Torah to the children of the ignoramus. That is the power of the anti-enticer. Someone doesn't push people away from God, but instead draws them closer to him. Now, beyond the reward accorded to someone who draws people back to God, our sages tell us that if you were to distill the mission of the Jewish people, what is the essential mission of our nation? What are we here to do? What's the mission statement of the Jewish people? Well, we're here to represent God in the world. We're here to continue what Abraham began. God chose us because of Abraham. We must bring God in the world. We must reveal God in the world. We must bring awareness of the Creator in the world. We must augment the honor and glory of God here. That's how our nation began with Abraham preaching to the masses, Abraham getting humanity to believe, Abraham shattering those idols, Abraham encouraging people to embrace their creator. At Sinai, our nation accepted that mission. We're going to finish. We're going to complete what Abraham began. So the greatest reward is accorded to people who draw others closer to God, and that's really what our nation is here to do. Moreover, the Rambam tells us that this is an indispensable component. This is a critical part of some of the most crucial mitzvos in the Torah. We're commanded to love God. Part of loving God is making sure that everyone has a relationship with Him. Is making sure that everyone's aware of Him. 
Just like someone who loves something so intensely, they have to just share it with everyone. We're required to love God with such intensity that we need to share that with other people. Part of sanctification of God's name, Kiddush Hashem, is spreading the word. So there's no greater reward than someone who connects others to God. It is our national mission, and it's a part of our responsibility. If you want to adhere to what God wants of you, part of it, two very important mitzvos, the Rambam tells us, loving God and sanctification of God's name, they include the responsibility to publicize God, to disseminate knowledge of God in the world. If this was not enough to convince you of the supreme importance to be an anti-enticer, to draw people closer to their creator, it's also, if you think about it, it's, it's real kindness. As I just point out that we are commanded to try to help people retrieve their lost items. If you find something on the floor, you are required to try to find the owner of that item. It's one of the mysteries in the Torah, to return the lost item to its owner. What if a person lost more than just a possession? They lost their keys, they lost their phone, they lost their watch, they lost some jewelry. What if they lost their soul? They lost their capacity to have eternity. They lost their connection to the divine. All the more so we are required to help them retrieve it, to give them a lifeline, to try to help them have a connection to eternity. If you love people, you should help them by giving them something that can sustain their soul for eternity. Now think about it this way. In our parasha, we have many mitzvos. One of the mitzvos is that when, God forbid, someone loses a relative and they are wrought with anguish, they cannot deliberately cause themselves to be harmed, to be wounded, to pull out their hair and to scratch themselves until they bleed. They can't do that over a dead person. And that mitzvah has a preamble Banim atem Hashem You are sons, you are children to Hashem, your God. On a certain level, the relationship that we have with our Creator is akin to being children of the Almighty. If you think about it, how many children today are estranged from their divine Father? Many, if not most. And what does any father want more than anything else? To have a great relationship with their children. So if you see children that have grown distant from their creator, is there anything that resonates, that the Almighty is desirous of, then you doing what you can to help restore the close relationship between the Almighty and his children. I read an incredible line 
in the writings of the Chafetz Chaim. And he's talking about the subject, how it's important for us to try to do whatever we can to help restore the relationship of our brethren with their Father in Heaven. He says the following line, and I found this to be very persuasive. And man should remember, we know that the way that the Almighty treats us is measure for measure. The way we behave, that's the way He's going to behave towards us. And we know, writes the Chavetz Chaim, that in the end, our soul will have an audience before God. And we're going to want that encounter to go well. And we're going to want the Almighty to have mercy upon us and to bestow goodness upon us. And what will you answer, says the Chavetz Chaim, if God says to you, why did you not do something for me? Why were you completely unconcerned about my agenda? Why did you not work to restore my relationship with my children? What about my honor? What about the honor of my Torah? I gave you a Torah and so many of the people who accepted the Torah at Sinai, so many of our nation, don't value it, don't study it, don't embrace it. How much has God done for us every day? Millions of kindnesses with us. What have we done for him? And what he wants is to have a relationship with all of his children. And if you could facilitate that, you are golden. Now, if you're not yet convinced about the imperative, the importance, the paramount importance of being an anti-enticer, of being someone who draws people back to God. I'm going to read you a piece from the Chovos Halvavos, from the classic work of Jewish philosophy and ethics. He says something really terrifying about someone who ignores this important responsibility. And he says, you should know, my brother, that the merits of a believer even if a believer reaches the highest level in the perfection of their soul, and they're basically like an angel. They're like an angel with their good character and their behavior. Everything's refined. Everything's pristine. And they work so hard to worship God. And they love God. They have a lot of merit, right? They have a lot of reward. They're so righteous. They're so pious. Nevertheless, their rewards, their merits are not equivalent to a person who tries to get other people, who tries to evangelize on behalf of God, who tries to spread the message of God, to try to get other people to go upon the good path, and who straightens the ways of the wicked back to God. Because that person... It's a pyramid scheme. It's a pyramid scheme working to our advantage. All the merits of what that person impacted 
if they get someone to do something good and that person goes on their own and continues that, all those merits accrue back to the original instigator, the original catalyst of those good deeds. And he gives an example of two merchants. Two merchants. One of them is like an authorized dealer of Rolexes. You know, it's really hard to buy a Rolex from an authorized dealer because the market for it is so vast. Everyone wants it, apparently. But it's really hard to get them or they don't produce enough of them and therefore in the store, there's not really any for sale. When I was in Israel over the summer, I was in one of the airports and I saw a Rolex store. So I said, maybe there's something nice to, to buy. So I walked in there. And they have a ton of watches on the display, but they all say, for display purposes, cannot be sold. So I asked the person uh, manning the store, what do you have for sale? So they pointed to one watch. This is not an exaggeration. There's one watch. The whole store is full of watches. There's one watch for sale. Everything else is just to display. You have someone who sells watches, and they only sell one, but the profit margin is enormous. It's just incredible margins. And they have the second merchant, and he doesn't sell items for a great margin. He doesn't raise the prices so much, but he sells a lot of volume. Who's going to end up richer? This is what the Chobos Lava says. One person, he sells one item and he makes a profit of 100 gold coins. And the other one, he has many items and each one of them he makes one gold coin off of. But he sells thousands, tens of thousands of them. Who's the end of richer? Of course, the person who, who makes more sales, more volume. So too, says the Chobos Lava. If you have a person who focuses only on themselves, I'm going to worry about myself, my soul, my mitzvos, my Torah, my relationship with God. That person, incredible. They've made a sale, a spiritual sale with such an enormous profit. Their margins are just through the roof. But they are nothing compared to someone who worries not just about themselves but everyone else, everyone that they encounter, everyone that they meet, they try to elevate them and try to help them also restore the relationship with their creator. They're the ones who are going to have the great spiritual bounty and they're the ones who are going to outshine the other person who focused just on themselves. The observation, I think, is stunning, and the imperative, I think, is now undeniable. If you have someone who tries to entice other people to do idolatry, and they just try, and they fail, there's no one, there's no criminal that's treated as, as severely, as harshly as they are. And from this, we can infer that there's no righteous person that's rewarded with the same intensity and the same greatness as someone who tries to get people to restore, to rebuild their relationship with the Almighty. 
here's the call to action. We're about to begin the month of Elul, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. The high holidays are around the corner. Now is the season of us reconnecting to God. And we've learned about the power and the imperative, the supreme importance to try to help bring people back to God. And the effort is really all that we could do. Even if it's doomed to fail, just like the enticer who fails in his insidious mission, someone who tries to restore other people back to their relationship with God, it's the greatest mitzvah. So the call to action is, if you know something, if you've learned something, if you've been inspired, if you've been elevated, share that with someone else. Encourage people to reconsider their relationship with the Almighty. Share the podcast. Not just to juice the download numbers, which of course I always appreciate. But what we try to do over here is try to take the Torah, take the lessons, take the Parsha with all the other podcasts that we do over here from the Torch Center. Try to make it understandable and accessible for everyone and try to proliferate, try to disseminate it so people can learn and enjoy at their own pace, on demand. Everyone can grow together. If you share this with someone, you're helping them restore their connection to the Almighty via His Torah. If you encourage someone to pray, if you encourage someone to go back to shul, if you encourage someone to reconsider their connection with their Father in Heaven, you are fulfilling the greatest mitzvah. There is tremendous power of someone who is a catalyst for drawing people back to God, and that must be appreciated and cannot be understated. Okay, let's look at this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready? Are you ready? It deals with what's for dinner. Beef, beef, it's what's for dinner. Twice in our Parsha, we see references to the consumption of meat. And our Parsha talks about the mitzvah to slaughter an animal. You want to eat meat. It's a cow. It's a bovine. It's a kosher animal, but it still has to be processed in the proper fashion in order to render it kosher for consumption. That mitzvah to slaughter and process the animal properly in order to make it kosher is found in our parsha. And of course, in our parsha, we also read about the list of animals that are kosher and the signs of kosher versus non-kosher animals. And I think there are two questions that I want to pose. Of course, we are allowed to eat meat. It's not an obligation to eat meat, even though when the temple, please God, is rebuilt, and there are sacrifices. Some of the sacrifices are obligatory, but as of today, there's no obligation to eat meat. It's permitted, but it's not obligatory. But certainly, we don't have any moral qualms with eating meat. In fact, most people in the world don't. I read once that only 6% of 
Americans are vegetarians. And of course, many of them are for moral reasons, like, like the PETA crowd. Some other, others do it for health reasons. Some just don't like beef. But we could definitely say that many people in our society have no problem with eating meat for moral reasons. But there's an amazing question asked by none other than the Ramban, one of the most reputable sages, of course. And he has the question, why indeed don't we have a problem with eating animals? We're killing animals for us to enjoy. There's a prohibition in the Torah against causing pain to animals. And the Almighty could have easily said, as we know before, Noah, this was the law. Well, if you can subsist on fruits and vegetables, why do you need meat? Why is the blood of animals, why is that allowed? Why don't we have a moral problem with eating meat? If we can be nourished with fruits and vegetables, why subject the animals to us consuming them? Now, this is an amazingly, what we would call, progressive question. The Ramban lived more than 800 years ago. That's question number one. Why, in fact, don't we have a problem with the consumption of meat? Question number two is based upon the Talmud, the book of Psachim, page 49b. It's talking about an ignoramus, someone that has nothing to do with Torah, with God, someone that's living as if God does not exist. And the Talmud says, such a person is not allowed to eat meat. Did you know that? The Talmud says, book of Psachim, page 49b. It has a string of teachings about the Amha'aretz, the ignoramus. And one of them is that they're not allowed to eat meat. And of course, a verse in Leviticus, Zos Torah Sabahim of Ha'of. This is the Torah of the animals that you're allowed to eat, not allowed to eat. And the Talmud notes that the word that it uses to talk about the laws of the animals is the Torah. And the Talmud implies from that, or infers from that, is that someone who's involved in Torah, someone who has a connection to Torah, they're allowed to eat meat. But the ignoramus, who has no connection to Torah, is not allowed to eat meat. And the question, of course, is obvious. What does someone's connection to Torah have to do with consumption of meat? And the answer... I think is quite exquisite. And if you agree, or if you disagree, you send me an email, rabbiwalbejimu.com, rabbis with two Bs, Walbys with only one B, and we could debate and discuss it. And I will point out that I've been way behind with my emails, and I apologize if I've not gotten back to you quite yet. I hope, I hope before the end of the week, to finally get to inbox zero. Now I don't have any more excuses. The kids are back at school. But forgive me. It took me a while to get back to you. I apologize. Listen to what the Ramban says. He says, 
that in fact we do slaughter animals and we do consume them. But there's no moral problem with that because that actually benefits the animals. Moreover, if you want to show mercy and compassion to the animals, the best thing that you can do for it is to slaughter it in a kosher fashion and to make some nice steaks, medium rare, with some with some pepper and salt, and to enjoy it. Now, what's the explanation of that? So the commentaries tell us something amazing. The Almighty, of course, is merciful upon all of his creations. It says so in Scripture. And he's merciful on the animals as well. And how does he allow us to slaughter those animals and to, to consume them and to eat them? Here's the secret. An animal does not have a higher soul. There are different gradients of souls. And the animal has a lower soul, not a higher soul. And the Kabbalists tell us that when the Almighty created the animals, he asked them, do you want me to allow the humans to slaughter you and to consume you? And they said, yes. And the reason is because something very strange but powerful happens when we eat. What happens when you eat is that what you consume seamlessly merges into you. Like they say, you are what you eat. If you eat an animal, now that animal is part of you. And if you look at it from the animal's perspective, the animal used to be on this level where it did not have any access to the higher soul. And now it's been melded and merged and fused and assimilated into a human. Now that same entity now is connected to a higher soul. And therefore, the way to elevate the animals, Aristides tell us, to make them from level one, so to speak, level of animals to level two or level ten, to be like a human, it's via integrating them within us. And if you do it in a proper fashion, it's kosher food, it's been slaughtered and processed in the proper way, that's not going to have a negative effect on the human because it's not going to be bringing any of its lowness, so to speak, to you. So everyone wins. Everyone wins. That's what Asidus tells us about the consumption of meat. And by the way, a parallel to this. I hate to disrupt your day, but I have some bad news here that came across the bulletin 
You, like every other human before you, you're going to die. It's not just the animals that die. It's also the humans. If you know that the humans are going to die. And just like when the animal dies in this kind of fashion and it gets elevated and it becomes like a human, it gets melded and fused and integrated with the human and now it has access to this higher level of a soul. That's precisely what happens in the good case, of course. To a human who dies, they also divorce themselves, divest themselves of their lowness and they go up, they go up to the next level as well. So the animal goes up to the level of a human. The human ascends to the level of an angel. Of course, there may be some stations along the way. It's not a direct line. It's not an express train. But that's the whole process of transformation of a human to some higher level being like an angel. And therefore, it's to the benefit of the animal when it gets slaughtered and consumed by the human. But what if the human is acting as animalistic as an animal? They're the Doramus. They don't take the lessons of the Torah. They don't discover the ways to improve themselves. They don't discover the ways to overcome their inherent, inborn, animalistic tendencies. Someone like that. Well, on a spiritual level, they're behaving exactly like an animal. And therefore, if the animal gets integrated into this person, it does not elevate. It does not ascend. It's not an improvement. So you're killing the animal and you're not benefiting it? That's not allowed. That's what the Talmud tells us, that the Indramamus is not allowed to consume the meat because we only do that in the setting, in the context, that it, in fact, is a benefit to the animal and not a detriment. Thus concludes this week's Exquisite Insight. It's an interesting subject, not one that we talk about here. It did, I must confess, give me a little craving, a little craving for some of that steak that we talked about. But first, we have to edit the podcast. It's already Thursday. It's a celebratory day. We begin together the third year of the streak, and we pray to the Almighty that he will be with us and we will succeed in our sacred mission to spread Torah, to spread knowledge of God in the world. That's what we're here to do. That's what we try to do here at the Torch Center. And together, I think if everyone listening to this, everyone who enjoys the Parsha podcast, if we all try to spread this knowledge of God to the best of our ability, we could change the whole world. We could change the whole world. And it's the greatest mitzvah. And it yields the greatest reward. That's what we should do. Do it. Let's go do it. And share your results with me at rabbiwobajib.com. Have an incredible rest of your day. An exquisite, sensational, terrific, amazing Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we will gather together again at the fireside chat with the kids in school. Please, God, with the help of the Almighty, next week.